Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. This is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories. Today we have with us Jay Offerendahl. Jay is a M&A advisor with multiple offices in the southeastern U.S. In his first transaction, Jay shares an outline of how an entrepreneur in a service sector identified a need where sales, operations, and the finance departments of his clients always seem to be relatively inefficient. He conceptualized a customized solution that could revolutionize the service and hospitality industry. Little did he realize how perfectly his company would be positioned when COVID hit. The same principles he used in this instance applies to your business too. Next, a young husband and wife team launched a business in the asbestos abatement industry. And again, they benefited from having a business that was positioned perfectly and was relatively COVID-resistant. Yet, they made critical mistakes. You need to take note so you don't make these type of mistakes when you're thinking of positioning your business for sale. Sometimes in deal negotiations, you feel like you're being held at gunpoint. Jay shares a story about a business owner that thought his landlord and a close personal friend, would renew his lease like he had multiple times before over the last 25 years. What he found out was that people, even close friends, get very funny when it comes to money. Finally, sometimes the stars just line up, and when they do, it isn't by chance. In this final story, Jay tells us how one of his clients focused completely on the details of his business and ran a tight ship. Everyone and everything in his business was organized, which is unusual in the construction industry, because contractors are notorious for being less than perfectly organized in the operational, HR, and financial record-keeping segments of their business. However, in this case, when it came time to sell, right in the middle of COVID, the deal went smoothly, when many other deals were struggling to get done. There's a reason for this, and there are some great takeaways from this transaction that can apply to your business. So get out your pen and paper, or just take some mental notes on the takeaways you're going to hear about today. This is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories. We have a real treat with us here today. We have Jay Offendahl. He's down in the Carolinas. Jay, would you take a few minutes and introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your business and specialty? Uh, yes, sir. Thanks, Marvin, for having me on. Uh, as he said, Jay offered all. We have seven offices located in the southeast. Um, we primarily focus on sell side representation with business and technology sectors. And most of our clients are what we define as closely held. So five shareholders or less in uh, the lower middle market. 
Okay, great. I'd like to have you jump in and talk uh, about some transactions you've been involved in over the years. You've been doing this a long time, so you obviously have a lot of different types of transactions, both those that are good and bad. So why don't we start a little story or two here about chatting about some of the transactions you've been involved in that had their challenges. Yeah, I've got a couple of ones that I've personally enjoyed and kind of more recent because after we're starting our 25th year, Marvin, so um we, uh, some of these kind of blur, blur together. Uh, but the first one was one that we just closed the end of last year. Uh, it was a virtual business that dealt with consulting and, and sales training, primarily in, in the textile industry. And it was a, a business that had a 15-year track record. Uh, the seller did a great job putting together a, a real you know, senior-level management team. Uh, that ran the day-to-day operations of, of the business. We were able to identify a, a great corporate buyer that was young, energetic, and, and great background that thought he'd fit well with this, you know, culture that was created. Um, and they really, you know, did a great job of, of being more of a um, performance-based organization where there's a, a small fee up front for the kind of the setting up of the, the training and, and their systems, Uh, But a lot of their compensation happened after where they were kind of verifying and keeping track and continuing the ongoing training of the departments for sales and marketing, but also managing to have them interact with the finance department, which uh, a lot of times they're not aligned with the common goal of not only increasing top line sales, but creating more efficiencies, shorting the account receivable days. So more of that cash was in the in the owner's pockets, the company's pockets. And so this business then got paid based on that performance after they implemented their processes. So a really unique business that we haven't seen often. Yeah, so I just wanna make sure I understand kind of the business model here. So we have kind of a sales consulting company and I guess this is kind of virtual, right? Kind of made yeah. for the COVID times, I guess, you know. Yeah, they were, they, were, they were ahead of their time. So they only had 12 kind of uh, consultants as far as employees that were out you know, working with their clients. So it, it was a very... And their clients were in the hospitality sector. Yeah, a lot of them serviced the hospitality sector. That's correct. Yes, sir. Yeah. So that was obviously hit pretty hard. So I would imagine that anyone that could come and offer services and insights and streamline operations and create efficiencies as well as customer acquisition in these tough times probably did pretty well during this last year. Absolutely. When people are doing well, they give themselves credit. When when things slow down, they kind of look around. So when the industry takes a hit, they were looking outside for opportunities to get people to help their business. And this is one of those businesses that did really well because people were looking for help. They're looking for ways to uh, increase top line sales, create efficiencies. And this company could also set the benchmark because they kind of have all the background information of the industry to let people know like here's where you're performing well here's where you're underperforming here's the room for improvements and this is the the path we should take to try to correct that and so what happens is once they corrected that uh, our client would get paid from their clients based on the increase so it was a very small fee up front 25 to fifty thousand dollars to get everything implemented for the first three to six months and then there was a kind of a six to 18 month trail where they continued to to work on uh, with with the, the, their client to help manage uh, and, and track what they're doing, and they would get a, a, a cut of that that increase. So it's really, you know, the, the, their interests were aligned 
with those clients because they really only got a good payout if things went really well. And they're betting on themselves and, and, and they won the vast majority of the time. They always brought something to the table to help increase that business. Well, that's kind of an interesting business model. It, you don't see that type of business model where, you know, you're paid based on your performance on what revenue you can actually increase. Right. And I would imagine this was kind of attractive when you went to market. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they had such a backlog since these contracts were ongoing for a long time, the buyer stepped into a book of business that if they just shut off the hose right at the beginning of the year, they had backlog that would carry them through the end of this year. So there was almost zero risk in the 12, first 12 months because of the excess billings that would continue to go through uh, were you know similar to one year's uh, annual revenue, so that the backlog was tremendous. Well, it sounds like this is a business that should have been teed up for a quick close. What happened? Yeah. And it was. It's one of those deals where things are going so smoothly, you're kind of looking and say, okay, something's going to bite us in the rear end. And sure enough, uh, what we found out is of the 12 key employees, the key employee was the only one that wasn't under an employment agreement and did not have a non-solicitation and non-compete agreement in place. So um, well, did they sort of think that he did? Yes, the whole time. You know, and, and, the, and the seller is a phenomenal person, just an oversight, just one of those things that things are going well and just really never got around to it. And, and you know, fast forward five, six years later, uh, they, everyone else is un, under contract and, and had these in place. And, and the key person, the right-hand person that the new owner was going to rely on was the one person that, that didn't have one. And, and that person helped develop a lot of the intellectual property that was being being sold. So the, the key takeaway is trust but verify even though you think everything is fine and we didn't find out till you know literally three weeks before closing and then had to scramble a lot of times when you have a situation like this the employee really understands their leverage and can hold out and hold the deal at hostage and yeah. extract a lot of pain to get the deal closed did that happen here it wasn't it wasn't too bad the, the the key, and sometimes we're all guilty of not putting ourselves in that other person's shoes. At the end of the day, it took a couple of days, but the concern was, what if I don't get along as well with the new owner as I do with, with the person that's selling? Which is a valid concern. Valid concern. But he was a good person with good morals and wasn't trying to take advantage of the situation. He just needed a little bit more of a security blanket. And so we put our heads together, and what we found out would be beneficial that made the, this key employee uh, happy was to have a severance package in place that if for some reason he was fired without cause, he understood if he did something wrong, you know, that this is a higher will fire at will state. But if he was just let go because the buyer's like, okay, I've got this, I don't need you anymore. This is something he's been doing, you know, most of his life uh, and wanted to be able to take those skills and, and still be able to, to quote unquote, earn a living. And so what the, what the buyer and seller came up with was a 12 month severance package. If you get, you know, let go in the first 12 months without cause, you'll get 100% of your base compensation for 12 months thereafter. And that gave the, the key employee a little bit of a security blanket to know that if things didn't work out like they thought they would, and they're almost 100% sure it would, but just in case it didn't, he had a little bit of a runway to figure out what he's going to do next in his life. And so after that, the wrinkle was kind of ironed out. Were there any other hiccups? Fortunately, no. Uh, we we kind of joke that that there's always going to be three things that we didn't foresee that could be uh, very emotionally become big uh, situations for the buyer or seller, and we want to get ahead of those. And in this situation, like I said, 90% into it, everything was going 
just as smooth as we could ever ask for. Great relationship between the buyer and seller. And it's one kind of thing jumped up. And and when you're getting that close to closing and deal fatigue sets in. and It, it isn't often addressed, you know. Things can be going along so well and it just things just drag out and they drag out and they drag out. So why don't you give me a little insight into the emotional side of a deal and this phenomena called deal fatigue? Well, to, to, for us, being a lower middle market, this is a huge relationship, emotional uh, business decision, and it's not just a transaction. So the, the seller, especially, they're, they're not numb sometimes to what's going on, where at the next level, you're talking about you know, $100 million deals, it's, they're just, it's monopoly money. This is, this is life and generational changing, what I call real money, real people's money, not monopoly money. And so um, when you're selling something you started from zero, it becomes almost like one of your children. And you've heard that analogy is like, you know, I'm selling my baby and it gets emotional. And, and from my perspective, somewhere between day 75 and 100, there's this, this point where uh, there's so much going on. You've gone through 145 of the 150 kind of like checklist items that you need to do. And those last five, if you want to use a sports analogy, you're, you know, you're at the three or four or five yard line and it's first and goal. You're not, you know, you get, we tell us like, hey, you're not going to punt. I'm going to let you punt for the five yard line. Like we're, we're going for this. But the seller and sometimes the buyer, um, it's just that one extra item that they just, you know, that wasn't a big deal at day one because they're excited and, and they got full of energy. But just the accountants and the attorneys and, and the deal fatigue is, is just kicked them so hard mentally and physically and emotionally that that one extra item is something that could, uh, you know, you've heard the analogy, it's, it's the straw that broke the cam camel's back. It really does happen. We've seen people push away at the closing table and it hurts. It hurts for everybody. But it's just that one last thing that someone asked for. It's like, I told you not one more item. And they draw a line in the sand and that person crosses the line and they're emotional and it, they, they make an irrational decision in, in the midst of it. So that's kind of a long way of defining what I call deal fatigue. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail right on the head. It's just that uh, straw that breaks the camel's back. People just get to a point where they want to close, and if it's not going to, they literally can back away from the table on an otherwise perfectly good deal. And I've heard stories on our podcast here where this happens uh, not all that frequently, but deals do blow up because of deal fatigue. That's right. I do. And so the takeaway on this story, uh, as you said, trust but verify. It is. And so even though you think that everything is in order, you think all the documentation is there, someone is going to go through it. So it's probably a good idea to make sure that you just don't make the assumption that everything is there, that you actually take a look at the documents, get the documents pulled together before you get to closing. So you don't have these uh, situations where you literally can be held up because of an oversight. And I've seen other situations and heard and stories told on the podcast here where it costs a half a million dollars to that key employee that knew he had leverage in this situation. So... It does happen. Well, let's let's move on to another uh, transaction here that may have some insights yeah. that uh, our audience can learn from. Yeah, and, and without being a spoiler alert, the, the lesson is know the decision makers, and and everyone knows that, um, but we don't always follow that that knowledge. And so, in this situation, a great husband and wife business started when when they're very young. You know, just the two of them in the trenches out of their house and, and, and the business kind of grew and, and they were uh, removing asbestos and, and other hazardous materials from 
uh, private, commercial, and government facilities throughout the Southeast and had a lot of, you know, contracts to do that. And their business really started going, growing nicely. They weren't um, super motivated to, to sell, but also felt like it'd be great to kind of solidify their retirement at a young age and continue working maybe for somebody that bought their business. With the situation with COVID, was this a negative or positive? Did everything sort of stop or? The government part of those really went out. So some of the schools and, and, and government buildings, as people were sent home, it kind of escalated the 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 demand to get in there and kind of get through. And, and that, that's, that's what I was thinking, you know, yeah, when the schools are empty and you have to do this. Uh, right. What a better time to do some of this work and get caught up. That's right. Exactly. So things, things are good for the, this company. I uh, had two phenomenal corporate execs that were kind of a search fund. Why don't but, you uh, define a search fund for our Well, yeah, so the, the funny word is, is a fundless peg. So you got the, the private equity groups that have a committed fund, you know, say, you know, $500 million or a billion dollars. And PEG is private equity group. And they have to deploy those funds within a certain time period, or they have to give that money back to the, to the investors. So, you know, they're motivated to deploy that money in a certain time period. Most of our transactions being lower middle market, um, you know, again, we're not doing the $100 million and billion dollar deal. So they don't want to buy, if they have a $500 billion, um, uh, million dollar fund, they don't want to buy, you know, 50 $10 million companies or even, you know, 25, $20 million companies. They want to buy five or 10, you know, seven, 50, $100 million companies. So uh, right below that, there, there's uh, search funds, which are basically, you know, some wealthy individuals that don't have a committed group of money they have to deploy. So some people call those search funds. Some people call them fundless pegs. And the reality is they, they've got to identify the business and then they go find the, the money. With a committed fund, they already have the money. They have to go now. They have to go find find the business to deploy the money. So this is find the business, and then the uh, the, the backers will look at this individual company and then determine if they want to, you know, in, invest in it or or back these these uh, you know corporate execs. And that's important for business owners in the audience to really get their head around is that some private equity groups do have funds ready to deploy, and there are some here that you called fundless. Uh, they identify the deal first. And you really need to know what kind of fund you're dealing with at that point in time, because it is crucial on the time it takes to close a deal. And assumptions can be made that the money is there and may not be. Is that right? Yes. And, and in this situation, again, it, it was innocent. It wasn't malicious that these two individuals, you know, that they had someone that was really interested in backing them. But when, when COVID hit, the backer said, hey, we need to shore up our current investments to make sure they're not undercapitalized or if there's a capital call to get through this time period and we're not making any additional investments. So at the end of the day, even though we did do our homework, we really didn't know that the two execs weren't the decision makers. So it, it was someone else that actually was, was going to say yes or no at the end of the day. The good news is since they were very well qualified financially in background is we were able to find just kind of more of a traditional lender uh, that that was willing to, to look at the deal and with their backgrounds really loved what they're bringing to the table. And they're able to kind of step in as a senior lender. And now the, the two corporate exists, they were the decision makers now because the, the lender was at their discretion. It went from That's an equity right investment to a, a borrower lender environment, right? Right. Yeah. And we just should have, you know, had that option uh, earlier because time for us is everything and, and time is our enemy in, in, in this industry. And fortunately the, the, the seller was very calm this, this whole time period, never got rattled. 
and and the and the and he and he also he and his wife loved uh, the the two uh, buyers and were patient with them as they kind of reorganized their their lending options. And so it ended up being a great transaction. Um, sellers were happy, buyers were happy. In a transaction like this, Jay, was it that since the deal kind of evolved and changed, did the seller actually have to carry back additional money that he had? Great question. Carrying back? Yeah. With the, with, so in the, in the new structure, there was a little bit increase in, in seller note. Uh, but the buyers were great because realizing there was a little bit less cash at closing, they agreed that once the debt to the senior lender was paid and they were paid a, a, a fair kind of management salary, that any of the profits would be split to pay down that increase in note quicker than the original amortization. So end up being a nice little kind of, I call it mailbox money for, for the seller and an increased pay down schedule based on the performance of the company, which the seller respect to say, listen, if, you know, so if we do well, we're going to pay this down quicker. If things just kind of stay status quo, then you need to be prepared to, to wait the full amortization on, on the, on the increase in the seller note. And so again, they had a great relationship. They're able to talk through that and communication is critical and things like that. Same thing with the deal fatigue that could have set in one of the parties could have said, you know what? I've had enough. I'm, I'm done with this. I'm just going to take my ball and go home. But fortunately, they had a, a good communication and they're committed to each other. And we were able to get, get it um, closed. Was the plan of the new buyers that were coming in, were they planning on scaling up the business and growing? Were the existing owners were kind of content and just doing business as it came in? I think the, the sellers had, had did want to grow, but probably not as aggressively as, as the new owners. And, and the seller would like the business and, and like the idea of staying on and, and has continued to stay on kind of running the business for the um, for the buyers. But the good news is, again, they're, they're now growing on on the buyer's you know financial wherewithal. So the seller has gotten rid of all their personal guarantees and, and don't have the risk exposure. And now they put millions in, in, into their, you know, uh, investments to already, you know, at a young age, solidify their retirement. Uh, they want to continue working, uh, but they could retire now. And, and uh, I mean, they're in their mid thirties, I think late thirties at the most. I didn't really ask the question. They look very young and they got young kids. So I was kind of guessing on that, but it was a great move for them to, to do that at this point. And they had long-term equity in the company or did they roll out after a few they, years? They rolled out. So it wasn't a recapitalization. Uh, they, they just, the only thing they're holding back was that increase in sell note, which ended up being about 15% of, of the total, total deal. So, I mean, it, it was a big number, but like I said, we've got the plan in place to try to, for the buyers to pay that down quicker based on the growth and the success of the business. I know we have confidentiality issues here, but was it a seven or eight figure number? Well, the total purchase price was an eight figure and the selling note was a, was a seven figure. Okay. That's significant. So it is. Well, I guess the big takeaway then, if we're going to recap this, I guess the big takeaway is know your decision makers. Even though you think you may know them, you really have to know who is going to make the final decision. And in this case, you thought you knew who was making the decision. But at the end of the day, when COVID hit, there were other people behind the curtain that were pulling the strings. And because, which is a valid reason, you know, they wanted to make sure that their portfolio companies were taken care of and that they had adequate capital to keep those companies well supplied with funding that uh, they became cautious and closed down all new deals, which is a normal kind of conservative uh, outlook on how to manage a portfolio. They're fiscally responsible. So no, no beef with that, understood it, respected it. 
just wish we would have known that three months earlier. <laughs> and so you, you really need to ask those questions up front and make sure you know who you're yeah. dealing with and who the real decision makers are. So the takeaway, know the decision makers is always uh, good advice for anyone that is looking to position in their company for sale. Well, Jay, why don't we move on to another transaction here that may have closed or may not have closed. Why don't you share something that may be a little bit out of the ordinary? Yeah, one one of the unique transactions that we've done, because we don't do a lot with retail unless it's really high volume. And and this was another anomaly where, you know, in a five or 6,000 square foot facility, it was probably the most profitable business I've ever heard of, you know, seven figures of of cash flow and, and just a really kind of an institution for where they're located and what they did and very few retail business retail. I would call it, I would call it a gift shop, but that doesn't do it justice. And, and without breaching confidentiality, you can just think of just a, you know, when you have a, a birthday, a graduation, a, a any kind of thing of celebration or, or just gifts in general is one of those. You can find anything and everything that's unique that you wouldn't find in a, you know, big how box. large of a location was it? I think it was like less than 6,000 square feet. I mean, it was not a, a large, it just was, an, it was, it was just one of those neat little, everyone had to go visit it, uh, whether you, you. It sounds like it had been place. there forever in a day. Yeah. Yeah. Been there for 25 years, uh, two partners that, that, that ran it wildly successful, uh, had the, had the perfect buyer who's, a, you know, his wife was already in business for himself. Uh, he knew exactly, you know, growing up in the area, he, he knew it and was just, you know, when it came on the market, it's like, man, that's just a, that's just an institute. I mean, everyone knows of, of this little secret, you know, high volume, uh, knickknack gift shop. I, I don't know how to describe it other than that, but it doesn't do it justice. It was just really a, a neat business. Well, I guess the bottom line is, is that cash flow was gargantuan. It was a yeah. strong cash flow business with seven, eight figures in sales, right? Yeah, it, it, it was very neat. Um, husband and wife team, they're buying it, got along great with the, with the two uh, business owners, their business partners, and um, everything's going very well. Uh, they did not own the facility. In a situation like that, normally a buyer would consider acquiring their facility. What was the thinking? Did you get any insight to what their thinking was on not acquiring the building? Yeah, no, it, it's funny because you know a lot of different businesses have different mentalities, and, and some people just don't like the the thoughts of brick and mortar because to, to them that just doesn't feel like it's very liquid. And and if if they needed to uh, you know move or relocate, they're they're not tied to owning the bricks and mortar. So these two sellers never really thought about, you know, buying the location they're in. Just they liked, it was a reasonable rent. They had a great relationship with the with the landlord for the, the 25 years. Are you aware so it was kind of like a five-year lease that was just renewed again and again? And it's just they've been good so long, just, you know, they just do five-year increments and, you know, nine days before the five year was up, they'd go and sit down and talk and, and do another five-year extension. And in this situation, my memory serves me correct, it's about three years in, so it's about two years left on the existing lease. Um, mm-hmm. and, the, and the lesson is, uh, you know, people get funny when it comes to money. And so this is in the middle of, of the real estate boom and, uh, and landlords were getting really proud of, of their facility. The seller's like, not going to be a problem. We'll get a brand new lease. The buyer's like, well, I really like to get a five-year lease with you know, two five-year options won't be a problem. We've paid on time every month for 25 consecutive years. It won't be a problem. So fam- famous last words, right? So they're paying below market rent, uh, $10,000 a month 
for, you know, over 5,000 square feet. So talk, talk about, you know, very reasonable 18, $20 square foot for, you know, good location. Um, and the, the landlord um, said, well, um, you know, that was our deal because we were friends and all that, but um, I want to double rent. So literally wanted to increase um, twice. So from $120,000 a year to, to $240,000 a year. And even though it's a seven figure cash flow, if you're eating into that cash flow, you know, seven, eight percent, um, and you're paying a multiple of, of cash flow to buy the business, then the, the buyer all of a sudden okay. got a little bit of heartburn on, hey, this, you know, I'm not exactly going to cash flow the same amount of money that, that you were. You know, you paint yourself into a corner. I mean, the landlord holds all the cards in these situations. And obviously, you have the option to move, I guess, but it's an institution that has been there for 25 years. That's not really much of an option, I guess. Yeah. Location was critical, right? I mean, it, it was a destination that people went to. And, and so you didn't want to, you know, even though a destination, sometimes you can move those, you just want to disrupt. There's a lot of cost to moving, you know, uh, and setting back up, uh, upfitting a new location, all those things. It just didn't make sense, especially for a new, for a new owner. I mean, uh, if people are looking to sell, that's one thing I tell people, if like, oh, someone needs to, I'm outgrowing my facility, I probably have to move in the next six to nine months. We always say, move now because the burden of, of, of learning and transitioning into your shoes as a new owner, um, they don't want to think about then having to, in addition to that, you know, move, move the business. So if you're thinking about selling and you're about to aggro your current location, it's much better to go ahead and, and do that. So that burden isn't placed on the buyer because it's going to scare most buyers. Yeah. So in this situation, I guess the landlord holding all the cards, I guess he can become very difficult and blow the deal up. Yes. Uh, so we have doubling in rent here. I'm real curious what you said, which I think is really apropos, friendship aside, people get funny with money. And when it comes to money, how did this unfold? Yeah, as I said, this is the biggest kind of increase that we've ever seen. We've seen many landlords, um, you know, kind of, and the kind of joke we say to the sellers is like, you know, this is the thanks you get for paying, you know, rent on right. time for 10, 15, 20, 25 years is now we're going to, you know, kind of screw you at, at, at the end or potentially screw a, tra a life-changing uh, transaction for you. But it didn't. Luckily, the, the landlord came down a little bit in their senses, had a little bit of emotional tug from, from the sellers and agreed to, to only <laughs> increase it 80,000 of the 120. Uh, we agreed to kind of offset the first year or, or half the first year increase. Uh, the sales agreed to a small price concession to basically give the buyer a full 12 months of breathing room to get in there and get acclimated and, and try to help, you know, increase the sales to, to bridge some of that increase in, in, in the rent. Um, and it, it worked out. The, the good news is it worked out. The buyer's doing, doing great. And is one of those people that, you know, probably open up another location because it's such a, a, a neat thing in, a, in another major market down the road. In this particular case, did they draft an entirely new lease signed by the, the new owners and right. there was no obligation by the seller at this point in time? Yeah, a lot of times with assignments, as you know, the, the, the landlord won't release the, the, the primary, the original tenant. Uh, they'll assign it and add to it the, the buyers. In this situation, we had a brand new lease, brand new five-year lease instead of assuming the last two years. Um, and then kind of fix that, even though it was a big increase, they fixed that for, 
you know, the first, I think, three or four years of the five and then had a couple of options on top of that. Well, for a seller, that's the that's the consideration because even though the business is great, you don't know these new buyers, and two years in, and you're still obligated on the lease, uh, you never know what would happen. You know, things can go wrong in the economy and a lot of other things. So that's a major consideration when he can walk away and have an entirely new lease and no obligations when he had two years left on his lease. So that that's a major consideration, I would think. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, people get funny when it comes to money. So that's the big takeaway here. That's so you just takeaway. don't you just don't make those assumptions that uh, good old buddies and longtime <laughs> friends, when it comes to money, sometimes those relationships get clouded, don't they? It's all, it's all forgotten, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So why don't we move in and wrap up our discussion here with a fourth and final transaction you've been involved in? Uh, maybe one that kind of went really well and maybe spectacularly well. Yeah. So, you know, I feel at the end of these transaction, I very rarely do I feel like a buyer and seller can't look us in the eyes and, and tell us that, you know, we didn't earn 100% of, of our, our fee because there's always just numerous, you know, again, if there's 150 checklist items and we're overseeing all those that, you know, we earn our commission, you know, every single time and, and, and every deal is unique and every deal has its own challenges. So there's nothing easy about our industry, but every once in a while, you know, the, the things will, will line up perfectly. And in this situation, it was a father-son team started, you know, 30 years ago, the father out of, out of nothing and, and grew, grew this empire, one, one of the largest, uh, and it's in the, you know, subcontract services industry in the Carolinas, one of the largest of its kind. And um, we, we didn't find any local traffic. The reason you didn't find any local interest, was it because of the size, you think? Try to go strategic and, and, and some smaller private acres because in that, that 15 to $25 million range, and, um, and we, we, we didn't. And then uh, someone out of the West Coast found us. And they had a, a footprint and a platform in, in this industry looking to expand. They love the Southeast, especially the Carolinas. Um, because of, of the growth and, and all the positive things that are happening here. And, um, it, and it was perfect. Uh, the, the, they loved the, that the father wanted to retire, the son wanted to stay on and was willing to retain some of the equity because they're, they're going to do a recapitalization where they own the majority, but the, the selling this time just the son was going to retain some of the equity in the new, new company that was being formed. And so much so that, that, um, you know, they're detailed in their um, due diligence and their quality of earnings and all that, but they just did everything they said they're going to do. Um, not just the, the letter of the law, but when, when they said they're going to be done with quality of earnings, they're done with quality of That's kind of unusual, you know, from my experience and hear a lot of transactional stories here on the podcast of construction-oriented companies. And it's generally the rule that contractors tend to shoot from the hip and they don't have all of their documentation, although they may be great operators. When it comes to back-end type of stuff, they tend to be lacking a little bit here. So this is kind of a flip of the coin. On the other yeah. side, it sounds like this father-son team been around for, would you say, over 30 years? Yes, it was, Mar. One of the first times that we... Uh had the the sellers in here to meet the buying group uh the father was early and i, I saw him i said hey I, I like that you know early's on time on time is late and he and he came over the top and said and he said and late is unacceptable so i think you know in a world that's renowned for you know i'll be there between you know eight and two and and they may show up between eight and two and they may not even show up Here's a company that built its reputation on showing up on time. Kind of uh, inbred in the culture of the company starting at the top, I guess. 
That's right. And so the buyer group saw that. They respect that. They like that. And I think they kind of a similar approach. And so when they said, hey, we're going to be done with this, and they and they met that, that was that much more impressive to the to the sellers. And and then and the and the key gentleman at the private equity on the West Coast even came out here, just flew out here just to see them kind of halfway through when we we're done with the due diligence for, for the financial side and started drafting closing documents, just to sit down and look them eye to eye and say, hey, we're on track, I have no concerns, everything's a go. And that's just another thing that to me is, you know, that doesn't happen very often, especially when, that, when if it's driving distance, that's one thing, but to fly from the West Coast to into Charlotte and sit down just to spend two hours with a, you know, feel-good meeting, um, speak, spoke volumes for, for who was buying them. And, and so that relationship and, um, and, and the, the, the bond and the, and the commitment they had to each other to, to close, a, you know, for us, a good-sized transaction in a, in a close window and everything just – the stars align. So at the end of the thing, that, that's the – every once in a while in, in merged acquisitions, the stars will align or if it's a perfect buyer, perfect seller, and perfect match. Culturally, backgrounds, and, and what they want to do in the future, this all came together and uh, was, a, was a huge win for, you know, both sides. I'm curious. Obviously, this company had been around a while, and it's fairly good size. You said one of the larger in the region there. I'm kind of curious. They obviously had a good management team put together. In situations like this, it seems often that uh, the existing management team may look to acquire the company, maybe through some either private transaction internally where they go out and get financing or some sort of ESOP. Could you, was that an option here? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the father that that was his original plan um i think you know a lot of business owners their their employees become their family and their perspective is i, I want to do something for my family i want to i want to do something good and, and so the one of the options to your point marvin is they look in this employee stock option plan uh which you know my, my joke about esops is if if you're own a brewery it's a great option because everyone that works there loves drinking beer and making beer. And that, you know, it's just, uh, mm-hmm. that that's my attempt at a, at a joke. But outside of that, I have not seen a lot of business structures where ESOP makes a lot of sense to the seller. So just for clarification, ESOP, ESOP is employee stock ownership plan, which is a structure that employees can go out and get financing pay the owner, the owner carries some. Yeah, expensive to set up, expensive to maintain. The, the benefits of the employees is a lot of times they're paying out the owner from the profits of the company. Uh, but for me, a lot of the businesses we meet, they're, they're so giving and thoughtful of their employees. I tell them like, hey, listen, unfortunately, this is the one time in your life we need to be a little bit selfish. And, and the company uh, paying you out over time with the profits of your company may work uh, but from our experience, that third-party buyer, where they're getting their own financing, they're they're signing on for the debt, and they're giving you mostly cash to close. And maybe there's a sell note, there's an there's an earnout, but they're solidifying your retirement with real cash at closing. That sometimes is a better fit for the employees. Where if there's not one true, you know, decision maker, and there's two or three of them. Yeah. You know, in business structures, I, I feel like, you know, you don't want a bunch of, of, of Indians, right? You need a, or chiefs, you need a bunch of Indians, you need a bunch of, of, of workers. You know, one person's in charge. And, and when someone comes in and buys it, the buying group's in charge. When you kind of not give, but sell to, to an ESOP, for me, I don't feel like it's always advantageous to the seller. They need to be yeah. selfish one time in their life. If they want to 
give some of the proceeds to the employees down the road, not, not at cash at closing because the buyers don't like that, but six, 12, 18 months down the road to stick around with the new owner. I love those type things, but I'm not a big fan of ESOPs unless you own a brewery. <laughs> uh, point well taken. Well, so here we have a situation, kind of unusual, I guess, for a contractor as a general statement, certainly not globally, I'm sh- sure, because we have exceptions to the rule like this, where you have someone that did everything, had things lined up. As you said, I demonstrated the culture of the company when he showed up early to the meetings and said that the alternative was really unacceptable. And so that's obviously a core belief on how he ran his business. And as you went through the due diligence process, which is, again, somewhat unusual because there's always issues in due diligence. And what you're telling me in this situation is that there were very few, if any, real problems in due diligence because they just performed and did what they said they were going to do primarily, probably, because things were all so organized. Is that a fair statement to make? It is a fair statement. They're well organized. And, and again, the communication between the buyer and seller was really well. They're committed to each other. They liked each other. They respected each other. Um, so, you know, the managing expectations is a big part of what we do. But when the buyer and seller are communicating well and they're dictating to the accountants and the attorneys as business owners and making business decisions how things should go, it normally works out a little bit better than when an accountant or attorney is dictating to the buyer and seller how things should go. They're in control. They're communicating well. They're doing the deal, and they're just getting the their people to put in the details behind what they decide on. And I would imagine in this particular situation, the buyer had a lot of confidence in what was being presented to him because it was complete. Probably not a whole lot of skeletons in the closet. The feeling in a negotiation like this is that what you see is what you get. And you're not doubting the numbers because they're incomplete. You know, you're not doubting the documentation because it's not all there. And you're having to make assumptions on what may or may not be there that holds up the transaction. And I would imagine this is reflected in the multiple. That'd be a fair statement. Absolutely. And, you know, in real estate, people say location, location, location. In our our field, it's like disclose, disclose, disclose. Everything's going to come out at some point. So go ahead and disclose it all up front. That way there's no shocks or, or, you know, heartburn down, down the road. And again, transparency was, was important to the, to the sellers. And, and to your point, they didn't have anything to be afraid of. So they're very transparent, disclose everything up front. And so during due diligence, everything lined up well for from the buyer's perspective. And it just made things uh, go very smoothly. I like that. I haven't heard that before. So I'm going to steal that from you, Jay. Disclose, disclose, <laughs> disclose. When things do line up and they line up for a reason that doesn't happen by magic, the stars align for a reason. And that's because they had properly positioned their business for sale. They had management in place. They had their documentation in place. They had everything that a buyer would be looking for. And that was reflected in the multiple. They didn't have to argue. And I would imagine the terms were pretty locked down and there wasn't any last minute negotiating. But, you know, and including a, a big sticking point is, is a lot of people know in this industry is the networking cal- capital calculation. And, and we, you know, had that up front. So there wasn't a, in a very tight collar around what that number was going to be. So when they're done, there wasn't a lot of back and forth on, on, on that. Well, why don't you just start the benefit? We haven't chatted about it that on the podcast recently about that networking capital. So in deals that are kind of North of 10 million, uh, if they're below 10 million, a lot of times the buyers bring in their own working capital to the table above 10 million. A lot of times it's, it's part of the purchase price. They may increase the, the purchase price, but they want normal amounts of, of, of working capital to be included 
in the transition. So it's included in, in the purchase price. And oftentimes, you know, some of the, the bigger private equity groups will, and they're not malicious about it. They're just trying to do everything they can to, to get the best deal. They'll put in their letter of intent that network capital be calculated based on gap accounting and, you know, and they don't put any metrics in there. And, and, and gap accounting is generally accepted accounting principle. Yeah, so which, which no one does below, you know, 25, 50, I mean, even 50 million dollar companies, very few people are true, true gap. If you look up the definition of gap and then you apply it to network and capital, I mean, you know, you know, obsolete inventory. Um, I mean, just different things you, you just don't think about in a normal day-to-day right. operating of, of a business. And so what we like to see is, is to make sure that we pin that number up front based on the, the seller's accounting practices, you know, they're, mm-hmm. what they've been doing historically so that there's not an opportunity for the buyer to claw back part of that purchase price. And so those little things can, and oftentimes uh, that one sentence written in, in the benefit of the buyer can call back five, 10, 15% of the, of the value of the purchase price in this situation you know, they put the normal language in there, but when we changed it to make sure that didn't happen, they're fine with it. So, you know, that oftentimes is a big number for us to negotiate through down down the road. Once the quality of earnings is done by the buyer, they come back with this, well, you know, in April it peaked and we need, you know, five and a half million dollars or whatever the number is. And, uh, and we address that up front that we're going to do that over a course of 12 months rolling. And the real number is going to be between, you know, three and three and a half, or whatever the number is. And now oftentimes we'll sell, uh, save the, the the seller a lot of uh, the ability for the buyer to claw back part of the purchase price. A lot of technical wording, but the bottom line is that if you have your business position properly for sale, big issues like this, because there's so many other attractive things about the business, doesn't become a stumbling block where the buyer is really trying to hedge their bet because they have high confidence in everything else in the business. This did not become a huge stumbling block, which it can in many situations. Well, Jay, this is fabulous. Uh, You've shared some unique stories, things that had sort of different twists. Some of these things we've heard before here on the podcast, some of them we haven't. So I really appreciate you taking the time and, Thank you. and talking us through some of these interesting transactions. If people wanted to reach out and get a hold of you, Jay, how would they do that? Our website is vikingmergers.com. That's V as in Victor, uh, not Viking, but Viking Mergers is plural, uh, dot com. My email address is just my first name, J-A-Y at vikingmergers.com. And our phone number is 704-676-0940. All right. That's great. Well, this is Marvin L. Storm at Business Exit Stories, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.